I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another fabulous day in the Lord's neighborhood, and welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I'm Page, your caffeine imbued host. In the beginning, coffee, mm, and lo, it was very good. Today, we are going to continue our little sojourn in the book of Judges. Today, we're going to start talking about Gideon, the next judge in our uh, walk through these heroes of the early times in Israel's history. Um, there's a lot of interesting little lessons that we can pull out of this. I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. Uh, the story of Gideon is one of my favorites. And um, I think without any further ado, we'll get started. But before before we get to reading it, though, I'm going to read an article that I got from my NIV study Bible. Uh, I'm giving credit to it at the bottom of the article, but this is a really, the question in my mind was, uh, whenever you see the, the term, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, what did that mean, really? Primarily, it means that they were giving in to the worship of Baal. Do you remember when we talked about the Ten Commandments, how it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me? And literally, it means, God is speaking as if he were a, a husband and, and Israel was his wife. He's saying, I don't want you to bring another man into the same room with me. Don't violate our marriage covenant by bringing another partner in. You will have no other gods before me. That's kind of what he's getting at. And that's kind of how he views it. It's, it's evil. Um, so when, when they did evil in the sight of the Lord... It's talking about the Baal worship. Now, I so then I just did went out and said, all right, well, who's Baal? Well, let's take a look at it and see what this article has to say. Baal was the name of the supreme god worshipped in ancient Canaan and Phoenicia. The practice of Baal worship infiltrated Jewish religious life during the time of Judges and became widespread in Israel during the reign of Ahab. All right, I'm going to stop right there real quick. Where was the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle at this time? Well, it, it ended up in a city called Shiloh. And uh, so I'm thinking, well, why, why was its influence so dimmed that people would so quickly, within a couple generations, start worshiping the gods of the nations around them, Baal specifically? And a thought occurred to me that... Um, When they were a consolidated nation, this juggernaut that entered into the promised land with and they 
and they when they were walking through the wilderness, work, walking their way through the wilderness, they had their uh, very specific order of where the tribes would be placed with the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant at the center. God was at the center of Israel, literally, not just figuratively, literally at the center of Israel. And every day they saw, and they they saw God in their midst when they were going through the wilderness, the cloud of fire. Uh, by night and the uh, uh, the the column of fire by night and the cloud by day and uh, the manna that fed them in the wilderness, God was at the center of Israel's life. They looked to that tabernacle. They looked to the holy place. They looked to the priests. And as long as God was at the center of Israel's life, idol worship was almost non-existent. But when they get, they go through the conquering of the promised land, and they start settling in their areas, the land that they've been given, started settling down in these cities, all the Canaanites were not gone. They didn't destroy and kill every Canaanite. But when God was no longer at the center of their lives, they started getting picked off by Baal worship. And by the time of Gideon, Baal worship was starting to become a very prominent thing. And that's what he's referring to here in this article. Um, the word Baal simply means Lord. The plural is Baalim. In general, Baal was a fertility god who is believed to enable the earth to produce crops and people to produce children. Different regions worship Baal in different ways, and Baal proved to be a highly adaptable god. Various locales emphasized one or another of his attributes and developed special denominations of Baalism. Uh, for instance, Baal of Peor and Baal Berith are two examples of such localized deities. So they had, they, they tweaked Baal, I guess, if you will, depending on where they lived. According to Canaanite mythology, Baal was a son of El, the chief god. Hmm, sound familiar? Elohim? It just means Lord. And Baal was considered the most powerful of all gods, eclipsing El, who was seen as rather weak and ineffective. In various battles, Baal defeated Yam, the god of the sea, and Mot, the god of death and the underworld. Baal's sister's consorts were Ashtoreth, a fertility goddess associated with the stars, and Anath, a goddess of love and war. The Canaanites worshipped Baal as a sun god and as a storm god. He's usually depicted holding a lightning bolt who defeated enemies and produced crops. They also worshipped him as a fertility god who provided children. Baal worship was rooted in sensuality and involved ritualistic prostitution in the temples. At times, appeasing Baal required human sacrifice, usually the firstborn of the one making the sacrifice. The priests of Baal appealed to their god in rites of wild abandon, which included loud, ecstatic cries and self-inflicted injuries. Before the Hebrews entered the Promised Land, the Lord God warned against worshiping Canaan's gods. But Israel turned to idolatry anyway. During the, Rahab, during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, later on down the road, at the height of Baal worship in Israel, God directly confronted the paganism through his prophet Elijah. First, God showed that he, not Baal, controlled the reign by sending a drought for three and a half years. Then Elijah called for a showdown on Mount Carmel to prove once and for all who the true God was. All day long, 450 prophets of Baal called on their god to send fire from heaven. Surely an easy task for a god associated with, associated with lightning bolts, 
but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. After Baal's prophets gave up, Elijah prayed a simple prayer, and God answered immediately fire from heaven. The evidence was overwhelming, and the people fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, interesting thought here. In Matthew 12, 27, Jesus calls Satan Baalzebub, linking the devil to Baal Zebub, a Philistine deity. The Balaam of the Old Testament were nothing more than demons masquerading as gods, and all idolatry is ultimately devil worship. So when they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, it's primarily talking about their following after Baal worship. And the fact that Baal worship was allowed to exist alongside of the worship of Yahweh, oh man, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You will not bring another spouse into our house. That's what God was saying. Those shall have no other gods before me. So they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what it's talking about. Now let's get ready and start reading chapter six. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. They left their homes and moved into the mountains and caves. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples would invade the country, and they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And God is good because he answered. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the land hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. Abiezrite? Abiezrite. Sorry, the names get me. Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. In other words, they would normally go on top of the hills or whatever, and they would thresh this wheat where they would slap it with two big paddles, and the the seed that would separate from the chaff, and the chaff being much lighter, would blow away in the breeze or the wind, and the kernels would fall to the ground. But he was doing that in a wine press in the low country. So because the Midianites, when they saw them starting to chaff, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, when, when they saw them starting to thresh wheat, they would come and steal that wheat. So he was hiding, basically. Angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. In my ignorance, I used to kind of laugh at this. Because here's this man supposedly hiding from his enemies, and the Lord calls him a mighty warrior. Two things. Gideon's going to prove later he's not a coward. So that's not what God, God isn't having a chuckle at Gideon's expense. God doesn't make fun of us like that. 
He does not make fun of his people like that. He was expressing something he saw in Gideon that Gideon maybe did not see, and maybe others around him didn't see. He calls him a mighty warrior because he is, in fact, a mighty warrior. Now, Gideon might not know it yet, but he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with me, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when he said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. This sounds a little bit like when God called Moses and Jeremiah. Moses, you know, he says, oh, Lord, I don't, I don't speak well, because God had told Moses to go and deliver his people Israel and speak to the Pharaoh. He says, I don't speak well. And Jeremiah said, Alas, Sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. See, first of all, God usually calls the lowly rather than mighty. It's, if you have a false sense of pride in your own ability, in your own strength, God's not going to call you according to that. Generally, God is going to call someone who has a more realistic view of their place in the food chain. Gideon wasn't trying to chicken out. He was just asking God, says, how, how is this possible? I'm the least in my family. My clan's the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. It's an honest question. And God's response was, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, God, who is the author of Gideon's story, is calling out Gideon according to his knowledge of Gideon. Gideon himself did not know about himself what God knew about him. Many times, God will call people to a task, uh, to a vision, and it will appear so huge and nearly impossible to uh, the person being called. But we have to realize, God writes a story. Do uh, you remember I've talk, talked to you before? Let's pretend this is a book. This is a book right here. Let's pretend I'm the author. I've written this book. I'm the author of the story. And in this story, I have introduced characters. There's love lost, love gain. There's adventures. There's danger. There's uh Every element of a good story is here, and I'm the author of this story, and to me, the beginning, middle, and end of this story is all now. I know it all now. I know what the hero is going to do at the end of the story, even though at the beginning of the story, the hero doesn't appear to be able to do anything. But I'm the author. I know what this hero in the beginning can do because... I've already written the end of his story. This is all now to me. No, God is the author of our story. God is the author of Gideon's story. So when he calls him great and mighty warrior, when he tells him, 
You're going to strike down the Midianites. You're not going to leave any of them alive. Now, in Gideon's own eyes, this seems nigh on to impossible. But God, who is the author of Gideon's story, knows more about Gideon than Gideon does. So God just calls it as a matter of fact. You're going to do this. I'm going to be with you. You're going to strike down the Midianites. Gideon replied, if now I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that's really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Now, you got to realize it's been a generation. There probably hasn't been miracles or signs of God's activity in Israel. Uh, and again, I'm thinking to myself, why is that? But then I keep coming back to the fact that Israel is no longer centered around, centered on God as the object of their worship. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant is in Shiloh. So if you're not in Shiloh, God is moving further and further into the background. So he's saying, if this is really you, I'm going to go get an offering. And watch what happens. The Lord says, I'll wait until you return. So Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat. And from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon all of a sudden realizes, I have been talking to a supernatural being. This is not, this, uh, he was, he realized that he'd been conversing with God. Kind of curious to me. But it's like the light goes on. He realized who he's talking to. And the Lord said to him, peace, don't be afraid. You're, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now the same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. His father has a Altar to Baal and Asherah? 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 Don't know these names. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. He's going to tear down the altar to Baal. And he has reason to be afraid because of the villagers, fellow Israelites. Oh. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with their share pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down their share pole beside it. Wow. How far the mighty have fallen. 
The Israelites were so apostate that they were willing to kill one of their own people for the cause of Baal. See, the influence of the Canaanites on the Israel was gradual. And over the period of a generation, it creeps into their psyche, it creeps into their day-to-day life to the point where these chosen people of God were actually worshiping the things of the world, Baal. There was prostitution. Baal was the god of their uh was the god of fertility and crops and and children and oh and it got to the point where it actually replaced God as the central figure in their day-to-day living. Yahweh was in Shiloh. Baal was here. Hmm. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Gideon's father, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him will be put to death by morning. So apparently Joash, Joash had, a, uh, uh, had some pull in this community. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal, which that day saying, let Baal contend with him. So... I, this is a curious response from Gideon's father, given that it was Gideon's father who owned the altar to Baal. Now, did he own the altar itself? Did he put it up? I kind of think not. Or did he merely lend out the land for others to build it? Because they'd always build it on a high place, like a hill or a mound. That might explain his rather combative response to Baal's followers here. He's not acting like he's interested in defending Baal's honor. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a plus in, in Gideon's father's place, but I'm still, it's still sad that he would give up part of his land to have this altar built on it. It sounds like the village, this small, or the town, placed a great deal of import on Baal worship. Doesn't sound like Joash did, but he still let some of his land be used for this. So I don't know. This, again, By allowing an altar to Baal to be erected on his land, whether or not he worshipped Baal at this altar, he still allowed it to happen. Isn't that curious? I I find it curious. Now, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. Okay. Sounds like they're getting ready to make their annual pilgrimage in and rape, plunder, and pillage the land during harvest time. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. Now, this Hebrew phrase, Spirit of the Lord came on, it's only used three times in the Old Testament. And it emphasizes the Spirit of the Lord empowered and acted through the human agent. The Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, emboldening him and empowering him. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a prophet, or in this case, a judge, at that moment, they see things more clearly. They are empowered. They, it's like you get a sense of, of God 
that you didn't have before. Now, there have been times in my life, and now in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. All right, in the Old Testament, it was like the Holy Spirit would come on individuals, but in the New Testament, when we are when we become believers, when we bow our knee to Christ, we're baptized into the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit becomes resident in us. And there, but, but still, there have been times when the Holy Spirit has been powerfully evident in my life in a way that was incredibly supernatural. And I've had times in my life where for brief moments in time, I have seen the heart of God in a way that I've never seen it before. The Holy Spirit came on me, and Sometimes I would say things or sometimes I would do things that I don't normally do or I don't normally say. When my daughter was ill, uh, when she was a very small child, in the middle of the waiting room, I was compelled, like never before have I been compelled, and never since, I was compelled to lay my hand on my daughter, on her forehead, fevered as it was, having difficulty breathing, and I rebuked the fever in the name of Jesus right there in the waiting room. And she sighed, took a deep breath, and the fever left. That, it, I, I felt the Spirit of God in a profound way. That's kind of what's going on here with Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet summoning the Abbeas rights to follow him. Well, God is empowering him and emboldening him. He sent messages throughout messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you promised, look, I'm will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dried, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. couple thoughts here. Was Gideon showing a lack of faith? Or was he perhaps demonstrating to those around him that it was God calling him by asking God to perform a miraculous sign that would validate his call to arms as being from the Lord? Don't know. Here's an interesting article, again, from my NIV study Bible. Christians today sometimes imitate Gideon's example by putting out a fleece, asking God for a particular sign to discern his will in a particular situation. This may mean asking God to do something miraculous, as in Gideon's case, or it may mean simply asking for positive circumstances to open up a course of action. In either case, is this a legitimate way to discern God's will? Well, to his legitimacy, I'd say, yeah. But is this the way that God prefers us to work? One thing is clear. Gideon's request showed a lack of faith. God had given him clear command, and he should have obeyed instead of asking for signs. But God is gracious. In the New Testament, 
request for signs is treated as a lack of faith. Jesus said a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I'm not sure that totally applies to Gideon here, because Gideon is in the middle of a conversation with God, an ongoing conversation with God. He's put out a call to arms, and if there are witnesses, that doesn't say there's witnesses, but if there were other witnesses from his tribe, his clan, coming around, he's going to say, look, this is how I know God's going to do this. He's going to, he's going to make this piece of wool damp and the ground dry, and then the next day he says, now he's going to make the ground wet and the fleece dry. It's kind of like what Moses did with his signs and wonders in front of the people and in front of Pharaoh. So I, I see what this author of this article is saying. Uh, furthermore, God's peoples are commanded not to put their Lord God to a test. Can't argue with that. Someone suggested the fleece was meant to be confirmation that the message Gideon was receiving was truly from God. But there's there's no indication in the narrative that Gideon thought this, or doubted God was telling him to do this. But in Gideon's defense, maybe those around him doubted, and this would be proof to them. While God, because of his grace, love, and patience, was willing to answer Gideon's request for this sign, and, and you don't see God rebuking Gideon for this. So, in this case, it must have been okay. Um, I really think that he wasn't a coward asking God, show me this, show me that, show me this, show me that. No, I, I don't get that. He's emboldened by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come on him. He's blown the trumpet. He's calling people to arms. He's calling his clan and other tribes to come join him in the fight against the Midianites. So, uh, he's, he's not cowering and hiding. I'm not sure I totally agree with this article because I get the sense that perhaps he is doing it for the benefit of those around him so they know he is called of God because it's been 40 years. And it's my impression that God hasn't been doing a lot in those 40 years in Israel. And now... He's asking them to believe that God is showing up again. Don't know. I know this, though. There's a time and a place for signs and wonders. We should not, we should not, uh, we should not dismiss them. And, you know, I used to say years ago, if you put out a fleece, you're going to get fleeced. You know, I there's been times when God has provided me with a sign to confirm what he wanted, to confirm to me what he wants me to do. And sometimes the signs have been to confirm others around me that God is calling me to do a certain thing. That's kind of what I get happening with Gideon here. My opinion of Gideon has changed. He's not a coward cowering in fear. He was prudent, trying to set aside grain for his family to keep it from the Midianites. And the Midianites show up anyway. And then God shows up and tells Gideon what he thinks of Gideon, great and mighty warrior. 
Maybe Gideon didn't see that in himself, but God did. And like I said, God sees each one of us in a way that we don't. God has already written our story. He knows the end of Paige's story, and he knows what Paige is. And so sometimes when he, I I imagine when he's talking to me, He's talking from the context of already knowing everything in my everything in my life, in my life story. He knows Gideon's story already. And he knows what Gideon may not know, that Gideon is a great and mighty warrior. We can rest assured in God's knowledge of us as the author of our story, that when he calls us to do something, He calls us to go somewhere. He's already seen the end. He's sovereign. He's the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega. The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. He knows our story. And when he addresses us, he's addressing us from the context of the fact that our story is already written in God's hand, by God's hand. Gideon was a great and mighty warrior, and we're going to see that in the next chapter. All right, a little bit longer than usual, but uh, I felt the need. This is Paige. Here's my coffee. Folks, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. You need to think for yourself.